This is Werewolf the Podcast, a podcast about the role-playing game, Werewolf the Apocalypse. D20 Radio, your gamer's role. Have you heard of high-level games? If you're a content creator looking to make your dream a reality, you need high-level games. High-level games does layout, editing, and development support such as Kickstarter and more. Even if you're not a creator and just want to enhance your game with exciting new supplements, go to highlevelgames.ca and check out Dark New England for V20. High-level games. We want to help you level up your role-playing game. Highlevelgames.ca Welcome to another episode of Werewolf the Podcast, but I've said that and it won't be about Werewolf very, very quickly. We are doing something completely different today just because I love it and I hope you stay and listen because I think you will find it interesting as an audience and may discover something that you will think is as amazing as I think it is. Um, So today we are going to talk about Realms of Pugmire, which is currently on Kickstarter. You should immediately go to that Kickstarter and check it out, then come back and listen to this episode and then pledge or pledge whenever, but just go and do that. So I am joined today by the illustrious Eddie Webb who is the brainchild behind Realms of Pugmire. Eddie, how are you today? I'm doing good. And, and I mean, it's not entirely off topic. It's dog adjacent, you know, exactly. talking about dogs and werewolves, you know. It's exactly. They're insane. sort of, kind of the canines, yeah. right? In the same vein, right? Right, <laughs> right. So, Eddie, give our listeners the elevator pitch for Pugmire. What is it? What uh, what sorts of things get you excited or get other people excited about the world? Yeah, so the, the short pitch, which I give like people at conventions who like are, are quick looking stuff, is that it's um, it's a fantasy game set far in the future of our world. Uh, where you play uplifted dogs trying to discover the world that's been left behind and they mistake technology for magic. So it's kind of um, Planet of the Apes meets Lord of the Rings, but with dogs. That's kind of the the super fast pitch of it. Um, but uh, I've always felt that it's kind of so much more than that. Um, uh, it's... It's it's a sci-fi game that uses fantasy trappings, so it's kind of like in, in disguise as a fantasy game, but it's really a science fiction game. Um, and it's a game about a world that has been left behind, and what do you do when the people you love are gone? Uh, on some level, I mean, it, it it it's it's a funny game. It has lots of dog puns in it, but also there is definitely an undercurrent of 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 nostalgia and loss that goes with it. Um, and it's it's wild to me because I I I made this and I was like, yeah, I, me and maybe one other person will get this, but everybody else will go, oh, funny dog game. And so many other people, like I know, like you have really zoned in. I know there's there's a lot going on here. Um, it's not just Weimaraners with iPads beating up monsters. There there there's a whole kind of undercurrent going on in this game. And so I've been really glad that some people have kind of uh, uh, grokked that and be able to kind of pull that out. Yeah, I think for the listeners of this show in particular, if there are themes about Werewolf the Apocalypse that grab you, they exist in Pugmire in under layers, right? Where mm-hmm. there's a sense of like there was there there are ecological themes in some ways that you can dig out of Pugmire. There's mm-hmm. a sense of like responsibility and connection and balancing that with all your other responsibilities within a world those things exist in pugmire like and for me the sense of what does humanity mean is there right in mm-hmm. uh, in pugmire and in werewolf right where there's like we are connected to people but in different ways like there's this separation there and, and in pugmire it's the, that separation is we know humanity used to exist and we have these ideals that they've given us 
but how do we live up to them? And then how do we really understand and value those things? So for me, yeah. those are kind of those linkages, right? I mean, at a, at a super reductive level, you could say that uh, werewolf, the apocalypse, uh, uh, the werewolves see the worst in humanity, whereas a Pugmire, they see the best in humanity. Right. Um, and, but you're right. I mean, uh, uh, this is definitely a world that has been devastated. I, I'm always hesitant to use the words post-apocalyptic because it conjures like it's 10 minutes after the apocalypse, like mm -hmm. Walking Dead or whatnot. And no, this is, this is hundreds, if not thousands of years after a potential apocalypse. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's way, 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 way past any kind of devastation, but there are still scars on the world. Um, like, for example, uh, the the sea to the south of the area that's mapped out is known as the Acid Sea. And it's, it's been interesting because like some people have kind of assumed, oh, no, it's like literally made of acid. It's like, no, that's just the name it has. It's just heavily polluted. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you drink it or fall into it, you're going to get sick and it's going to burn your skin just like heavily polluted water does in the real world. So it's certainly an emotion of something that happens to this world. But again, because dogs in our lives culturally tend to see the best of us. Um, they don't think, oh, humanity did this. They're like, oh, it's so weird that this sea is made of acid. Huh, that's funny. I guess man never got around to fixing that. Do, 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 you know? <laughs> exactly. And for folks that may be like, hey, I have another fera uh, or other you know animal species that I'm excited about, there are other people in yeah. Pugmire as well. Can you just give us a brief like touch on each of those different groups of people? Yeah, so... um. Uh, it is it is a dog forward game, I guess the best way to put it. I mean, it's like, you know, it's Rumble the Pugmire. Um, and particularly in this new edition that we're kickstarting, um, uh, uh, the core rule book is focused on dogs. So again, like uh, like Werewolf, um, uh that that's gonna be kind of the the thematic center of the game. Uh, but you're right, there are other playable concepts. Like right in the core book, you'll be able to play uh cats, rats, and mice. Um, because again, all three of these are kind of the key animals that we tend to talk about in our stories that we have human relationships with. Dogs and cats are obviously our, our most iconic pets. And then we have so many stories about mat mice and rats in our culture. So to me, those four species are kind of the big ones to to, to as player characters. Um, but over the years, you know, we've we've introduced player characters for reptiles and birds and rabbits. Uh, I mean, so there are other uh, species out there that are playable and also other species on top of those that are not necessarily player characters uh, so other animals have been uplifted but unlike say uh, a red wall game um, where each individual character is a different species uh, this is much more there's only a handful of species have been uplifted because again we're not representing all animals this isn't every animal can talk these are what animals would humanity have specifically spent the technology to try to uplift into walking on two legs and talking and moving and using tools um because i mean yeah sure they may have uplifted uh, uh an elephant but that's not really a good idea um in fact i did a actual play with redmond role-playing about what happens when you know you uplift an elephant and that that, that could go horribly wrong yep um so this is gonna be the odd one-off creature that's made because some people just love to tinker with stuff but i mean in terms of consistently we're going to uplift dogs we're going to uplift cats and then mats, rats and mice and so i mean you just kind of see like these are the species that make the most sense for humanity to do something with yeah and i think what's the thing that i glom onto with that is the we look for what we are familiar with right and so mm -hmm. by connecting the most familiar pet animals in particular like i i, I know that there's a, a person out there who's like i want my pet tarantula or something like that to right. be in this game right mm -hmm. and yep. i think you as a as a story guide as a guide you can the gm dm whatever term you want to use for them as a creator of the story <laughs> in the role-playing game <laughs> you can do that like the the mechanics yep. are there in pugmire for you to tinker uh and make your own one-off or like small group of uplifted people if you wanted to do so so I think it's a good start. Like having those core uh, groups allows you to pick on specific themes too, right? Because like cats, we have these ideas of what our cats are like in relation to us, which I think lets us build a particular story from, from a cat perspective, right? Where we can guess, oh, cats might do X, Y, and Z if they lived in this world and build a story. Same with dogs. Like 
a lot of the stories that I've seen people do in Pugmire is like, I'm going to go and fetch a thing, right? Fetch quest is a, uh, a card game for like in the world yeah, because yeah. the idea of fetching a thing, right. Is like a, a, this dog concept, but like, it's just so easy to create your own stories in it because you take mm. 10 seconds and think, what would my dog do? if they were yep. an uplifted being in this space and then you just you kind of run from there um which i guess is my pitch to like people running the game like it is very easy to craft stories from this mm -hmm. and then you've also got all kinds of really cool adversaries and monsters and what we have a, the unseen right that you can dig into and use tell us a little bit about the unseen uh, so uh, the Unseen are effectively demons. They are kind of unknowable, strange creatures that haunt the world and that dogs and cats believe are either responsible for or have had a hand in why humanity is spirit. Uh, and on some level, it's, you know, like a lot of things in Pugmire, it starts from a level of a pun and then kind of then plays that pun seriously. So the pun is like when dogs bark at nothing or when cats at three in the morning stare into a corner and then run away, they're looking at the unseen. That was kind of the original gag is that there's these invisible demons. Uh, but then it's the, okay, but what if we play that straight? What if there literally were invisible demons? And how does that shape your society? And so um, you're right. It's like you can use that to build these kind of cultural stories that we've told ourselves. So the dogs respond to the unseen by, by binding together into groups. They make packs, they form groups, and they work together, and they, their community is how they defeat the unseen. Um, and again, it's one of the reasons why I think it makes for the great kind of core structure, because it's the classic tabletop role-playing game structure. You get party of group of people together, a party of people who are from different walks of life, and they go out and they fight monsters. And that's what dogs do. That, so that all really tracks well. Uh, for cats, it's the, the the kind of grudgingly work together. Um, uh, and so it's like, I, I, you know, we'll work together. And it's ultimately my interest that we get rid of this thing. But also, I kind of want to show how I'm cooler than everyone else. And so you have a little more kind of that vampire the masquerade, if you will, vibe of the, the, the group is working together, but also they're trying to one up each other a little bit and trying to kind of show how they're better than everyone else. Um, and so that sends a different kind of, of party dynamic. Uh, but you're right. It, it, if, we, if we just map onto what we think about with these different kinds of pets, stories kind of naturally evolve. I mean, of course, there was a war between dogs and cats in the past because right. we expect at some point in time for dogs and cats to fight. Right. Um, I can tell stories of things like xenophobia uh, in a very different way than, say, a World of Darkness game, because in the World of Darkness game, you always have to be careful about being uh, culturally sensitive and making sure that people are, are respected and appreciated. And you, that's still true of Pugmire, but also being able to say, I hate you because you're a cat, doesn't have the same resonance as I hate you because you're a Jew or a Muslim or whatever. Um, it doesn't have the same kind of, of connectivity. Uh, and so you can tell those stories at a remove to a degree, and also everyone kind of naturally buys in. And then you can start to question those things. You can subvert those expectations. Um, one great example is uh, there were a group of dogs who um, a cat had been arrested for uh, destroying material in a library, and they, the dogs suspected a demon, so they went to go investigate and found there was an invisible demon. But it started because the, the constables found a cat alone in the library and arrested him because he was a cat in the library, in a dog library. And so I didn't really touch on it very heavily, but at the end of it, there was a player who came to me. He's like going, I think I just played a story about racial profiling. And, and yes, on some level it is. It's the dogs arrested the cat because it was a cat. Uh, and I didn't, again, we didn't go deep into it. Um, it wasn't a, a strong resonance, but it was there. And the players kind of went along with it because like of course dogs and cats hate each other and then at, you go through the end of it and it's like wait a minute when i start applying that to people suddenly that doesn't seem as cool as i thought it was that just I, I should actually unpack why we have those assumptions yeah yeah uh, so i am a huge advocate for using role-playing games specifically to do that sort of work where, where you are 
evaluating your own prejudices and the experiences of, of people within and without your own cultural boundaries, right? So let's, mm-hmm. one of the reasons I, lo- I, I loved the world of darkness and still love the world of darkness so much is the ability to do that, right? But yep. Pugmire lets us do it one extra step removed, right? Yep. Where we we can do all of those things that you're talking about and afterwards have that impact us, right? Like the idea of there's this society, these societies of people who are trying to figure out how to exist in the world and have these frustrations and concerns with each other is deeply human, right? And the ability to then say, I'm telling you this deep moral story with some really good dog and and other animal puns, like it just, I think it lets it hit deeper, right? It's like, I don't know, allegory on allegory is just my jam. So like, (laughs) I see it. And and I think, uh, uh, I I will say a lot of this stuff, I stumble on kind of, during or after development i won't say i went into it expecting all this those kind of things that evolved organically throughout and also as i've over the years i've kind of found oh that it goes to this, something to this but one of the things over the years that I, I think the reason why pugmire works better than say a D fantasy game is that um if the allegory is too far removed then the real world connectivity kind of gets dragged along with it right yeah um if you use the x-men as an allegory or if you use a, a, a dwarves and elves as an allegory um because there's nothing else there the human context needs to be put on there to give it context and so it, it, you can never really step too far away from it but we as humans have long-standing relationships with animals and and certain personality traits and elements that we put onto animals and they're so ubiquitous that we it, it feels natural to, to play into these things but it doesn't feel human yeah um and sometimes that's a problem i'll be honest uh for example early on uh when i started hiring writers to work on the material we didn't haven't fully fleshed out uh the rats and mice yet but one of the things i knew they were they were going to be a, a a diasporic population so they lived in the margins of other people's cultures and societies um, and what people tend to do in those societies is they they carve out small communities of their own inside of those cities, um, and ultimately they're going to be very focused on trying to make sure they survive inside that culture, um, which means uh, from an outside perspective, they're going to be focused on commerce and money a lot. Um, and so uh, I didn't give enough guidance to the writers ahead of time to kind of think through the nuances of this, and so the first drafts I've got of stuff was just an endless parade of long-nosed rats who are obsessed with money hiding in, in, in underground and i'm just like whoa okay wait a minute we're getting real close to real world allegories here that i'm not comfortable with let's kind yep. of shake this up so i mean um when you have iconic animal stories and motivations you have to often take a step back and say okay but what is this actually saying when we do apply that layer on there um and uh you know same thing with with uh, for example cats uh, i mean I very much made an intentional effort to mix a lot of real world cultures in. And luckily the setting for Pugmire allows me very easy because it's post, 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 and they have bad archaeology as their basis. So for them, it's like, of course, this Roman bit of history existed simultaneously with, you know, ebooks or whatever. You know, I mean, it, right. to them, it's all one just history. It, it's a lot. Look at our own bad ancient archaeology. You know? <laughs> exactly. I mean, look at D&D. It's like, yes, of course, this thing from. 800 AD is exactly the same thing as this thing from 300 BC. You know, of course they exist simultaneously. So, I mean, uh, that's just their version of the same thing. So I can do, I can kind of mix those up, but I do intentionally mix it up. So I've had people say things like, what does the Far East in Pugmire look like? Is like the exact same, only for a different compass direction because no, I'm not doing your Asian stereotype game. Thank you very much. Um, I would much rather do things like, what would you do if you take bits of Asian culture and jam it in with like say Renaissance Italy and 19th century Prussia and then make a culture out of those bits then you can kind of again dilute and uh, homogenize the the, the human, human elements and so it's not mapping to one thing but it does need to be intentional uh, uh, but you're right I mean it's, it's so easy to kind of just step in and go okay well this group hates that group and they, they do this and they do that 
Um, as long as you're taking an extra step to think about it, it can be very powerful. Um, but I always caution, it's like, just don't get swept up in it and, and not think through what you're actually saying about other groups when you do that. Yeah, absolutely. The the layers of it where you're like, I'm telling an allegory, but I don't want to actually be offensive in telling the allegory that I think I'm trying to say. Right, exactly. Um, it is a legit critique. And as it, listeners of Werewolf the Podcast are very well aware, a critique that I have of the world of darkness that sometimes oh, yeah. it misses that mark where it's trying so hard to critique a thing that it's like, wow, you, you've actually made it worse by saying that. Right. I mean, I won't call and to get groups to get offenders or anything but it does happen <laughs> occasionally in the world darkness exactly exactly um i want to there are two big things i want to talk about but i, I want to talk about mechanics and old school role playing first and then i want okay. to talk a little bit more about setting um but one of the things that i find really interesting as a person who didn't really like the old school AD&D-esque stuff at first. I've grown to appreciate some element of it, elements of it more recently. Mm -hmm. But I think what's interesting, if you are that type of player, if, if that type of design of game is interesting to you, the sci-fantasy elements of very early D&D &D are here in Pugmire, right? And they kind Absolutely. of play out mechanically as well. So... Tell us a little bit about the the old school influence uh, of the design that's in here in the game. I mean, so I uh, I am a gamer of a certain age, mm -hmm. uh, uh, certainly. Um, I, I started in the early 80s. Uh, so um, I, I lived through a lot of the the evolution of role-playing games. Um, my wife actually has been playing even longer than I have. She actually started playing in the late 70s. So she, short of playing Chainmail, she's played every edition of D&D. <laughs> Uh, so um, it's always fun at conventions. People are like, "Oh, your wife is so tall. Are you playing games?" She's like, "Oh my god, she'll kick my ass." She's so good. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but one of the things that always kind of stuck with me throughout my 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 enjoyment of gaming has been that a lot of early '80s gaming, in particular, I feel is unfairly maligned because it was just trying to figure stuff out. Mm -hmm. And there are some genuinely interesting stuff that happens around that time period that I think it's been lost in history. Um, and one of those is, like you said, that moment of where fantasy had not been, genre fantasy had not been kind of as commodified as it is now. Um, it was kind of, here's some bits from Tolkien, but also some bits from Conan and some bits from Elric and some bits from other kind of 60s and 70s staple fantasy. Um and so there was this time period in D&D &D where sci-fi was just randomly thrown in, and there was no real explanation given. Uh, the best example and probably the peak moment of this was uh, Expedition Barrier Peaks, which is kind of the, the go-to adventure, where it's literally just a spaceship get, falls onto a D&D &D world and you do a dungeon crawl on the spaceship. And that's the whole story. Um, and, and you genuinely fight robots and pick up laser guns, like the whole nine yards. Uh, it's, it's, it's bonkers and ludicrous, and I love it. But also, I'm a gamma world um was definitely a lot of what if DD but post-apocalyptic you know um and uh even star frontiers which is very explicitly kind of space opera still has some kind of fantasy elements in it uh and indeed all those games kind of have nods to at least uh dungeons and dragons because that was kind of the first one so this blending of genres was, was very prevalent around that time period and that's something i wanted to kind of evoke in pugmire um and that's one of the reasons why i used um in the first edition i used uh, an ogl base uh, for my mechanics because i wanted to evoke that same feel i wanted people to i wanted it to be not dungeon and dragons as it existed but the dungeon dragons you remember playing so um like you said i i've also kind of come to appreciate the AD&D that actually exists uh, because when I first started playing it, I was like, this game is great. And then I found other role-playing games, like this game is awful. And then in my head, it kind of built up into this horrible system. And I went back and it's like, okay, it's still not completely to my tastes, but I'm seeing better now what it was, what it was trying to do. And so can I make a game that channels those elements, but uses modern game design? So uh, even the first edition of Pugmire, 
uh, was kind of, I think, a little unfairly categorized as, oh, it's just 5e, Dungeon Dragons. It's not. It, there's a lot more changes going on. I, I simply made some changes to make it better the game it wanted to. And this new edition is just taking that even further. It's it's now uh, uh, evoking a more generalized, older school, older style of role playing. Um, so uh, it's a better version of itself rather than a better version of Dungeons and Dragons. There's still going to be a lot there that if you've played Dungeons and Dragons that you recognize, but there's also some tunnels and trolls in there. There's some Palladium fantasy in there. You know, uh, that whole kind of era of fantasy gaming. Uh, there's bits and pieces and nods and uh, references to that that I wanted to uh, evoke and channel. And so I thought I could do that better by making the system a little more distinctive in itself, but there's still a pretty strong undercarriage of modern D&D style fantasy gaming in there. So people are going to be rolling a D20, they're going to be comparing it to a number that determines uh, how hard they are to hit. Um, they're going to have weapons that do damage. There's going to be spells. I mean, all that stuff that, that that's common. But again, I argue that's not D and D per se. That was the very first fantasy game, Dungeons and Dragons, and a lot of games built from that base. So, I mean, I would argue there's just as much Final Fantasy in that design as there is D and D. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of thoughts I have uh, on that, but <laughs> the thing that I like about the mechanics that we've seen so far for the new edition is that they're a little bit easier for complete newbies to slide into mm-hmm. without uh, making weird assumptions about what the terms mean, right? Like there, yeah. there's a thing that you've mentioned before on other uh, podcasts where people kind of misunderstood what hit points meant mm-hmm. and by kind of separating from some of the language that people assume that fantasy gaming has, it allows you to customize the particular story a little bit more effectively. And I think from what I've seen of the mechanics, and I haven't read all of the updates yet, but the mechanics I've seen for this edition do that just another extra step where it's like, this is clear what this is. So it's a very good introduction to a new group role-playing. And I, I, I want to call that out also as yes, it evokes things that are great for old school gamers and, and fairly seasoned gamers today to connect with, but it's also a really good inlet for, Hey, I've got a couple of 12 year olds who are interested in playing a game. Here is a great system and a great pathway for them to get into the hobby. Yeah, and I mean, again, some of that was kind of the weird Ouroboros that is between tabletop role-playing games and video game design. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, um, so I'm going to start by saying I'm a 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons apologist. I feel like 4th edition was a genuinely good system. Uh, but I do recognize a lot of people bounced off of it because the, the complaint boils down to it feels like an MMO. And... If you unpack the why is it a bad thing argument, the point is is that the, it felt a little too video gamey to a lot of people, and for and for whatever reason they felt that was a, a down a penalty. Right. Um, but like you say, there are going to be a lot of people, you know, younger people are coming to this who their knowledge of this comes almost entirely from playing video games, um, and they're just start tabletop games, and so that's going to be their kind of map to it, um, and so some of the design decisions I made are simultaneously evocative of old school gaming and also video games where they kind of drew from. So like, uh, for example, I have uh, spell points um, and basically comes down to uh, you spend a bunch of points and that's a spell you can cast. Uh, uh, D&D has bounced around with this on some of them, never really done that. Whereas mana points are such a common way of my sleep spell cost me three points, so I lose three points off my meter, and then I cast a sleep spell. So I kind of, that is a, a way to get people to play video games to kind of draw in. Um, but it's still wild to me. Like, uh, um, my my roommate ran a game for Pugmire for his niece and nephew a few years back, and I got to play with them. And uh, some of the stuff, they, they exactly what I, what I thought all that happened. Say, okay, I know how that works, I know how that works. Um, and then they would get, you know, the dog gave them a mission and they would go up. And so they're like, okay, where are the side quests and how do I track them? <laughs> right. 
because that's how they though fantasy gaming works. And so we had an interesting conversation about that's not how this works and you could do whatever you want to because they're so used to, okay, what are the menu of options I have? Um, and that's more to the point of how you can kind of channel these games into running them for younger people because I have found consistently between me running it and other people running it that it's better to go to younger players and say, do you want to try this? Do you want to try this? And presenting a menu of options for them because that's the kind of gaming they're used to um, as opposed to much older school of just figure it out, just go into the world, you know? Um, uh, but it even shapes things like uh, Squeaks in the Deep, right? Um, Squeaks in the Deep was a module that primarily was to introduce rodents into the Pugmire, but also was my mega dungeon, right? Yep. And the mega dungeon so explicitly kind of an old school concept of you just gear up and you go into a dungeon, you just explore a dungeon and you that is dungeon you explore for like maybe literally years of real time. And that's the entire campaign. Uh, but that's not how we approach things. And so I structured it a lot more like um, level design in a video game where here are the set pieces and we need to get players to those set pieces so that they can have cool fights in those set piece areas. And the stuff between the set pieces can be interesting and evocative, but that's not really the reason we do them. It's just kind of, we get you from one set piece to the next. And so turning that into your mega dungeon of here's all the stuff that can happen under underneath the world and how you know you, you you manage your light and your food and your water and all that kind of resource stuff that can be fun for a mega dungeon thing but it's not just this giant sprawling map with a whole bunch of nothing in the middle of it, it we, we, we cut all the nothing parts out of it so always trying to find that balance of how would a video game do this and how would an old school game do this and how would modern games do this and a lot of times there's usually a pretty strong overlap in that Venn diagram. So I just kind of take the centerpiece of those three circles, pull that out and say, cool, that's my design. Um, but it's it, it, it has caused me to challenge some assumptions to go back to your original point. Um, hit points certainly is one. Since I've given that anecdote, I've also found people who didn't even know what HP stood for in video games. So that was <laughs> right. just, HP is just a thing that goes down. I don't even mm -hmm. know what those letters mean. I just assume it's HP. Um, but also uh, uh, just little things like uh, in this edition, I've done some more of that. Uh, I, w I was running into people who thought that spell level mapped to character level. So it's like, yep. if I'm level three, I should cast level three spells. That seems to make logical sense. And it's like, that's not at all how that works. And you're right. That is kind of weird. So I've changed that to magnitude to show, okay, this is how powerful your spell is. They have a, a higher magnitude of spell. Um, conversely, uh, monsters are no longer done by an arbitrary rating of challenge but rather monsters have levels because that makes more sense. If I'm a level three monster, I'm a level three character. It should be about an even fight. Um, so monsters or enemies, as I call them, now have levels. Um, and all the underlying mechanical math has been recalibrated because so deep in the weeds of fantasy game design. Um, but uh, fifth edition D&D, &D, and really I think the past few editions of D&D &D, uh, assumed that a challenge rating, say three monster, is a challenge for four characters of level three. Um, that's the assumption. The math does not at all work for that, but that's what they're telling you it is. So what ends up happening is that a challenge rating one monster should actually be a decent fight for challenge rating one characters, but that's not really what happens. And vice versa, 10 should be equivalent for level 10 characters. And again, it's usually too powerful. So it's actually kind of pinches at both ends, if you will. Um, so I said, well, I'm just going to recalibrate all of the math around one for one. If you have a one level three monster and one level three character, they have a fight. So if you have, if you just add the levels of the characters together and then add the levels of your enemies together, that should get you a roughly equivalent fight. Now, all that is to say white room balance is a joke and, you know, uh, in terms of like role playing game, particularly it, it doesn't always work that way. You're not going to get a mathematically perfect thing. Um, and circumstances are always different. They shouldn't have the role-playing game. But I have found in playtests that the math does kind of skew closer to where it should be. It is a, a decent challenge. And then the benefit that player characters have are some things that they have access to, tricks and healing and fortune and other mechanics that give them the advantage. So if they didn't use any of those, then it would be a, a roughly a coin toss of who would win. But because they have that, they're going to pretty consistently win, but it's going to be, it's going to feel like a close fight, which is the whole point of how you want to calibrate those mechanics. Absolutely. Um, but again, so I mean, it, that's something that if you start seeing on comparing numbers and thinking through the logic you're not going to see because I, I don't want you to have to care about that when you're playing the game 
but I'm doing this kind of under the hood redesign. And again, I have to rename things to kind of make sure that's extremely clear to people who don't have 40 years of cultural experience with the role-playing games to go, well, of course, this is what a saving throw is, you know? Yep. I think that's sensible. And it's it's always funny to me. This is, again, we're veering off, totally off topic, but the <laughs> idea that... Uh, in game design, you can kind of design a thing and people will make all these assumptions because you you are coming into the design going, everybody knows X, Y, and Z. Everybody knows right. about hit points. Everybody knows about character levels. And not necessarily. And mm-hmm. it's always good, just like when we're talking about allegory, to stop for a moment and, get, and ask yourself, what assumptions am I making as a storyteller, as a designer, that I need to take into account when a player comes to this, that they're going to understand this is what I'm trying to tell you. These are the things I expect you to take away from it. And then there's space for you to take your own things that don't make those things problematic. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I I think, I don't know for, for me, that's where good new products uh, really shine like where they're trying to uh, understand that you are a co- totally new player who has never seen a role playing game but doesn't necessarily have to retread all of the same conversations like some books will focus on this is how you do a role playing game you can do that in different ways i think pugmire the text we've seen in realms of pugmire in particular does that in a way that doesn't feel like i'm reading the same description of how to role play that i've seen in other books yeah and what's wild to me is that a lot of times i will see designers approach that problem go how can i kind of reinvent this wheel Mm -hmm. um and i'm actually highly supportive of people trying to look at old problems in new ways i think that's the best way we grow and innovate as a as a as an art form yeah uh, but also it's wild to me that a lot of these questions have been answered by older designs and we've just forgotten them. Um, yep. So for example, and this is on me, I, I also had another moment of me hating something for years because I had been trained to hate it um, was random character creation. Uh, because one of the things I wanted to do this version was uh, I did not, I wanted to give people a chance to make their dogs as fast as possible because I started this with the assumption of tabletop role players, right? And so here's six example characters to show you how they're made and also characters you pull out a book and play. And because if people don't know what kind of characters to make, they can just grab something and play it. Yep. But time and again, people wanted to play their dogs, which means they had to go through full character creation. And so my, this time around, I was like, what can I do to make that faster? And so initially I went with kind of, and I, it's actually in the cool book, is template character creation. You just pick a bunch of options off a menu plunk them on your character sheet and that gets you those big boxes get you close enough to if you never play the game before my dog's you know kind of lazy um but he's funny and i gotta take those traits and then make appropriate decisions dump them on a character sheet write a bunch of words i don't know what they mean and then start playing and figure it out as you go along um but then i realized i couldn't make that random and uh i have been kind of coming around to random character creation because again decades of Oh my God, in Traveler, you could die in character creation. It's like, yes, that was <laughs> yes. The one edition of Traveler in right. the late 70s. Yep. We've learned a bit since the late 70s. Uh, and the problem, as I came to it, I realized is not random character creation as a concept. It is bad random character creation. Yes. Uh, and so looking at games like uh, the Marvel Superheroes game from 84, which uses random character creation, is a good random character creation system. And that's only a few years after the era more maligning right um and so it's like okay so as long as the characters are reasonably balanced and people recognize when they're heading into areas where randomization may end up costing them and also they can opt in and out of randomization at any point in time that's another big thing is like either you're on the random train or you're not it's like no what if it's the i don't know what to do here you can randomize just that part of character creation or you could do soup to nuts randomization if you want to um, and not only did I find that character creation was faster, I got it down, it's now down to 10 minutes. And nice. that's from scratch. Yep. I, I never looked at the book before, I do it in 10 minutes. But also in testing it consistently, I found people go, this is actually really fun. And they were excited to play the characters that had been randomly created for them. Yep. 
Uh, and that's a different way to solve the same problem of how do I get a character fast? It feels like a modern problem, but it's actually a very old one. Yep. I just want to say I have uh, I was a huge random character creation fan prior to getting into the world of darkness. And mm-hmm. then I got into world of darkness stuff and I'm like, oh, I can do all this point by blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But then when I got back to something, I think it was Palladium. I, I went back to Robotech and randomly generated a character and was like, that was great. That took me like 20 minutes. And now I have a character and they have yeah. weird things that I never expected to have in their background. And I think that random element for me is something that I, I I've actually tried to push into my world of darkness stuff where like, there's just enough randomization of elements in the story for it to be like, I would not have conceived of that, but it makes sense. And I can weave it into the tale. Right. So I'm I'm 100% on board for that. I I am uh uh what what would I say a reborn uh randomized character creation <laughs> advocate. Um I just right. I, I see the value and I'm, I'm I'm really happy that it's there in Pugmire now because it it just gives you that opportunity to be like if I don't have a core thing here I can get something that's random that I can then lean on as a, as a, like a role-playing crutch, right? Like, Oh, this right. character, you know, maybe has a, um, a, a, a fondness for cats in their life. Like they're a dog with a fondness for cats that then becomes a role-playing hook. Every time you have a cat NPC, they're like, Oh, I'm so excited. This is the cat that, you know, it's another cat. Yay. Those things just become elements of the story. Right. Yeah, or or things like you know, okay, I rolled the last name Pug, but I have the worker uh, upbringing, so mm-hmm. now it's okay. So the big strong Pug, how does that work? And then okay, well maybe this Pug, and you start to try to answer that question. Um, uh, uh, but also again, because of the way I structured it, it, it's the okay, I don't like that result. I want, I'm I'm starting to feel the character now, so now yep. I, I can start to pick choices. Yep, it helps to overcome that decision paralysis. Yep, um, because that's another big thing about random character creation is that um you don't have to make choices but when it starts to become fun to make choices then you can just switch right into that um and and people different people are gonna have different points where they're gonna find that that switch happening um some people again uh, love to make every single element of their character and absolutely full character creation is still there that that's not going away um but i i've had so many games where people are like they just want to play because everyone else seems to be having fun and so it's like i don't know what to play um, and so they just like now they just roll dice and go, okay, I guess I'm playing a poodle that has a battle axe and is a magic user. All right, cool. We're doing this. Right. Which that's cool. Like I think there's so much value there. Um, we could probably do episodes just on those elements and talk about them all day long. <laughs> I, I want to talk about the setting as kind of our last thing to talk about today in that I, you know, Pugmire is uh, is a city, right? It is, it's a city that uh, yep. most of the dogs live in. That's kind of the centerpiece of the of the world. And then you've got these other locations like Houndton and Waterdogport, and you've got all of the things happening in the monarchies of Mao. What I think is interesting is having that home base of a city is a really interesting callback to both some old school game design stuff and also this sense of it's a it's a centerpiece to adventure from and experience the world Mm -hmm. like oh i have this general feeling that i know what a city is like and how these things are going to be set up particularly if i've seen game of thrones or something like that right but right then you can you can use it as that spoke to move out and connect to all these other places and other types of stories tell us more about Pugmire and what it's like as a place. Uh, so um, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, I, I designed Pugmire as kind of the the home base structure um, because you're in, in a lot of modern games. It's the here's the entire culture and it, a map and it just dropped on your plate and then you have to find a space in there to play in. Whereas uh, uh, more traditional or older style games are like, okay, here's the city you're in and a blank map. And just pick directions they're going in. Um, and if you look at Pugmire structure, um, it's pretty straightforward. To the north are mountains, to the west are plains, to the east is a big scary forest, and to the south is water. 
Um, so uh, kind of the big four biomes, and then if you go past the monarchies and you get to the desert, that's the other big kind of adventuring biome. Um, but those are like the big kind of backdrops you put onto a stage when you want to go adventure, you know? Yep. Um, there's snow, there's trees, there's grass, and there's water. Uh, but um, Pugmire as a city, so I, I, I kind of wanted something that felt big. Uh, you know, there's, you can, there's lots of possibilities inside of it but was confining enough that you would eventually want to leave. Uh, so um, uh, I, I kind of based it off of how actual cities evolved. Um, so it's, there's kind of rough quarters to uh, the city that were originally kind of designed for a certain goal, but over time they've kind of shifted and moved around and, and bled around each other. Uh, so uh, the big one, uh, um, I, I've kind of changed the focus a little bit. Initially, I gave equal time to all of them. Now, in this version, um, Riverwall has a more attention to it because kind of the more adventurous starting point. Riverwall is the dock area. Um, and initially, it was this is where shipments come in and go out. Uh, and so it, it's kind of we have a, a, a dock there and a way to protect our borders from the river. Um, also, uh, it was a staging ground for, in the past for uh, the war against the cats because that's right. That's the closest part of Pugmire to the forest that separates the cats and the dogs. Uh, but over time, as with common imports in most real world cities, it becomes the area where immigrants tend to come to live. Yeah. So, you know, this is where if you're going to play a cat or a rodent, you're probably living in this area if you live in Pugmire. Um, and so it's a natural place to kind of start a venture because it's, you know, a little seedy. Um, but also it's the more most cosmopolitan area um, is a chance to kind of, you know, do that kind of uh, step off a boat and start adventuring dynamic if you want to. Um, and there's lots of interesting characters there, uh, but also lots of people who need help and need advice and need have a little bit of money they want to spend on an adventure. Uh, but the rest of the parts of, of Pugmire are a little more kind of orthodox. Uh, but there's still lots of, of variety and interest there. Uh, so it was the very much written for the what would adventurers find interesting, but also a little bit of there's uh, uh, other things going on that don't necessarily involve it. So, for example, that should come up on the on the Discord recently. Um, one of my favorite bits is on the northern part of Pugmire. Uh, there are these two bars that uh, they're right across the street from each other. Um, one guy bought one bar. Um, right in the out from somebody else, so they bought the space across the street and they just started fighting. Um, this new edition is about three or four years later, you know, rough number of years later, um, and they're still fighting. It's this rivalry's been going on for, for years now, apparently. Uh, and that's just a kind it's like, why are they still doing that? Why are they still fighting? It's like, because people need a reason to fight, honestly. <laughs> right. Uh, but also, it, it, the, the, it doesn't really have anything to do with going off and being adventurous. Uh, but it is a kind of thing that if you're hanging around town, people go, well, that's interesting. I'm curious. I want to look into that. Um, so I definitely wanted to put some stuff in there. Like, why is the tailor also mysteriously, weirdly the best armorer in town? Mm -hmm. And also accidentally. Uh, they're actually kind of annoyed by the fact of how good of an armorer they are. They got, what is up with that? Because I, I wanted this to be a space where stories can be told too. Yep. Um, so yes, there is a place to go buy armor. There is a place to go get drinks. There is a place to go find adventure. All those things are there. But all of them are always kind of in the shape of, let's add a twist to this, that is just kind of people living in a strange town and trying to make things work. Yep. That's the, uh, while it is not just an Onyx Path thing, the thing that I feel like Onyx Path related stuff and the folks involved in Onyx Path, Pug City is a separate company, but I'm just saying. Right. Yeah. The, I'm working with Onyx Path. So it's the yeah. same thing. <laughs> the the influence there is a, everything should have a story hook. Right. Yeah. And mm -hmm. and I think that is such a truism of, of Pugmire and the other things there that it's like, yes, you could just go to the tavern and it's called the golden bell. And like, there's a cat owner end of story. Or there could be the cat owner has this backstory that is just sort of hinted at that then makes you go side quest, right? Talking back to our side quest thing earlier, where it's like, now I've got a side quest that I'm yeah. going to dig into while we're doing this thing in town. 
and players love that sort of stuff. It makes them feel like the world's alive. So, oh yeah, uh, one of my um throwaway bits from a playtest that has now become like a huge chunk of the world because I keep going back to it um is that there's a groomer shop called Mr. Meows. Yeah, uh, it, it's in it's in Riverwall. Um, and it's just a, a, a cat owner that does a grooming shop, basically like a barber shop. And he has an obviously thick foreign accent. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time I, I play him, is like going, it's not, I'm not doing a bad accent. The character is doing a bad accent. <laughs> right. So, so it's like, this is obviously the character is being extremely stereotypical. And I did it just as kind of as a gag. It's like, you know, it's, it's, you know, a, a cat with a weird, bad Russian accent who grooms dogs. Okay, it's just kind of an odd thing. Um, and then pretty quickly, I was like, okay, so he's obviously trying to, his name is Mr. Meow and he has a bad accent. He's trying to, obviously trying to hide from something. And right. I envision him kind of like as like the quark from Deep Space Nine of like the obvious mercantile guy. Um, but then it kind of evolved into, okay, well, he has a secret. He's on the run from the cats. And so he's trying to be as stereotypically cat as possible to deflect other cats from finding him because they won't possibly be the obviously almost offensively stereotypically cat guy. Right. Um, and then, you know, and, and then in, uh, I ran an adventure for, in, for Squeaks and Deep and like one of the tunnels came out under Mr. Meows. And so, okay, <laughs> he's actually also kind of hiding people and getting them, getting other cats who are trying to flee the monarchies out of, through Pugmire. So he has kind of underground railroad. So he just keeps building and building and building all because players just kept getting really interested in this cat that tried to explain away about why my Russian accent is so terrible at the table. Right. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, it's one thing that. I love doing with Onyx Path and also my own stuff is just ask the question of what, why is this thing here? Um, because yeah, it's so easy to kind of do, okay, here's the place where you buy magic stuff. Um, but what if the person running the magic shop also happens to be my Sherlock Holmes pastiche, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yep. I mean, the, the, it's, I always try to add like something to it and Especially with a game like Pugmire, because it has a base of humor to it, you can throw silly things on there, and then people will either take it as a joke it is, and you just move on, but it's still different. Or they'll they'll take it seriously. Like, no, seriously, we have to know why this is, and then there might actually be a story under that that you just realize as you kind of explore it together. Um, so as long as I love working with Pugmire is because sometimes the gag is just a jag, and sometimes there's so much more there, and you never know which is which. Yeah, absolutely. So. For folks that have made it to this point, if you haven't done so yet, go to Kickstarter right now and pledge for Realms of Pugmire. Realms of Pugmire, it's on Kickstarter. You can search for it and you can find it. There's also going to be a link in the show notes. Um, But I really think folks should check it out. I, I cannot say enough about how fun and deep and interesting a game any of the Pugmire stuff has been, and this new edition is going to be even better. So I think if you know anyone who likes animals in any way, anyone who likes role-playing games in any way, you should check out this game. You should play it. Um, you should play when I run it for an Onyx Path Night at some point. Um, all of that to say, uh, until we get an answer to the question, when will you Bark, I guess. Uh, We'll talk to you next time.